All right, you guys ready to start? Let's do this. Let's do it. All right. Okay, howdy, and welcome to episode five of Cast Protection. Cast Protection is a podcast that discusses the Netflix original series Stranger Things. My name is Jonathan Kreitz, and I'm joined by Dave Atterbury. Hey, how you doing? And Chris Tyler. Hey, everybody. You can reach us at castprotection at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at castprotection, and we also have a Facebook group. Um, you can leave us a review on iTunes, and, and we received a new one this week, so I'm going to read that for us right now. Let's see. This is another five-star review. Which, again, this is the only kind of reviews we want to see. Uh, this one's from David Pascarella, and David says, Excellent podcast for an outstanding show. Stranger Things was an outstanding Netflix series. Once I started, I burned through every episode. The reason for that is the creators of this podcast. Ooh. I knew if it, being Stranger Things, was good enough for them to do a series on it, it was worth my time. This podcast is an awesome companion to the show. Each episode is analyzed, and entertaining discussion ensues. Highly recommend this podcast. Thank you, so Dave. That is high praise. That Thank is you. Very, very Thank kind you. of you, Dave. Um, Dave or David, I'm not sure which he prefers, but we'd really do appreciate that, and we would like more reviews like that. So uh, send them to iTunes if you can. Please do. Hey, um, before we go any further, I just wanted yeah. to mention real quick, uh, big thanks to a uh, friend of the show, Steve Glosson for throwing us a shout out on one of the latest episodes of the big honkin show and anybody who's listening to us now because of that welcome we appreciate you downloading and listening and reviewing the show thank yes. you thank Absolutely. you mr glasson yes um let's see and let me check the email nope no email at castprotection at gmail.com this week. So. Email is old school. Everybody does Twitter and all that stuff now. Yeah, I know. I know. The kids on that Twitter. <laughs> and the 140 characters. Uh. <laughs> I unfriend yeah. you. Yeah. It's not how this works. That's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, maybe one day. You know, we just need to get, like, Luke, Jack, and Eddie or someone like that to just give it a try. And if, he'll get to, if he gets emailing, you know, he'll just keep doing it. That's true. Some of those guys are real regular emailers. Uh, we just need one. So, <laughs> someone have pity and send us an email. <laughs> Even if it's a scam email from Nigeria, we don't care. Yeah. We'll, re- we'll respond. We'll respond. Oh, yeah. Um... Other thing I had a note here before we actually get to the episode proper is that the big news this week, of course, this was yesterday morning, as we're recording this, that season two of Stranger Things has indeed been confirmed. I think we all finally given. Yes. But there was no official confirmation. But Netflix confirmed what we all suspected and announced season two via a really sweet teaser trailer. Yeah, a little announcement trailer. Yeah, basically the theme music plays over what looks like the main titles, and the following words play across the screen. So first was Mad Max, then The Boy Who Came Back to Life, which I wonder who that could be, uh, The Pumpkin Patch, The Palace, The Storm, The Pollywog, The Secret Cabin, The Brain, and The Lost Brother. And I think we all assume, at least right now, 
that those are the probable uh, episode titles for season two. So that was a really cool way uh, to announce that season two is going to be coming next next fall. I guess the fall of '84 is what it describes in the in the text on the trailer. So yes, if only yeah, it was coming so out tomorrow. That. Yeah, <laughs> no, right. that gives us something to look forward to. That's true. Yeah. It'll be fun. And, I'm sure we'll take a deep dive into this oh, in the yeah. trailer in our upcoming episodes. But yeah, yeah, I just yeah, want ex- to yeah. make note of it because it was we were all pretty excited. Yeah, super excited. Yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, let's get into our episode proper here. Um, let me start the synopsis and and we'll get going. So in the opening, we pick up where we left off. The episode begins with a slow pan down on the National Laboratory. Hop waits for some people to leave the building then sneaks in before the door can close. He makes it into the quarantine area before he is stopped by the head of security. Hop tricks him into hesitating for a moment, then disarms him and the guard with him, and proceeds further into the locked area of the lab. At the at the buyer's place, Lonnie encourages Joyce to drink something to soothe her nerves. She must have finished telling him her part of the story so far, as Lonnie tells her it's her grief and that what she says about Will being close and in the wall and everything else couldn't possibly be true. Back at the lab, Hop is calling to Will and stumbles across Eleven's old bedroom. Um, At Mike's house, the boys are trying to figure out what Will was saying over the radio, that Will said he was home, but that it was dark and empty. Mike remembers how Elle earlier had described Will being in the underside of their dungeon map from the game. She calls it the Upside Down or, in D&D parlance, the Veil of Shadows. We end the opening with a great voiceover of Dustin reading their sourcebook description of the Veil of Shadows while Hop makes it to the rift in the laboratory. He's then captured by security. So, in the episode proper, Jonathan comes home that night to find Lonnie consoling Joyce. Jonathan is now convinced his mother was onto something and is wondering if she attacked the wall because the monster came through. Jonathan and Lonnie speak alone in Lonnie's room, and Lonnie says that Joyce is sick, and that Jonathan will make it worse by feeding into it. He tells Jonathan he is there to help, make everything better for the family, and also tells him to take the evil dead poster down. It's boo, boo, bastard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Which, that's one show that I don't really feel like is, I mean, one movie I should say, that I don't really feel like is uh, homage to or really referenced. Uh in the show, at least so far. No, not but, really. Yeah, it, it's the wrong tone. It's too zany, too crazy, too... I don't know, too wacky, I think. Uh, the first one's kind of creepy. Yeah, no, the first... I mean, I'm not saying it's not creepy, but you know what I mean. Like, the crazy POV shots of stuff flying around the room and... Yeah, it's... Yeah, you got a point. The slapstick and all that, but... Uh, and also, it's just extremely violent. Um, <laughs> yeah. But this is not the Evil Dead podcast. So. No, no, it's not. <clears throat> At Mike's, his family prepares to head to Will's funeral, and that morning the Byers family dog jogs through the woods to Castle Byers, the port we saw back in episode one when Joyce was looking for Will. At the Byers house, they also prepare to leave, and Jonathan struggles to tie his necktie. We cut to a nice long shot of the graveyard next to the church as they bury Will. Dustin laughs that he can't wait to tell Will that Jenny Hayes cried at his funeral. After everyone gives condolences to Lonnie, but no one does to Joyce. So Joyce is thinking back at that time to a moment when Will was coloring a drawing of their RPG characters at the kitchen table. Will the Wise, as his character is known, is throwing green fireballs because sometimes the bad guys are smart too. 
Hop comes to. He wakes up in his trailer, sweating profusely. He runs outside with his gun and no one is there. He goes back inside and proceeds to destroy his home, looking for signs the government is watching him. And finally, he finds one in the overhead light of the living room. At the secretive lab listening station, Brenner listens to a recording of the boys trying to reach Will over the radio and says she, being 11, was there with them. Jonathan and Nancy map the attacks of the Demogorgon and realize it's all in the same area, so they steal Lonnie's gun and they plan to kill it. At the middle school, a technician comes to examine the burnt-up radio in the AV club. Mr. Clark has never seen anything like the damage to the radio. At the reception following the burial, the boys uh, corner Mr. Clark to question him about parallel worlds and how to travel to them. He uses an illustration of an acrobat and a flea on a tightrope and says that if a portal or gate were open to another world, then we would feel the effect in our world's gravity and magnetic fields. Hop's deputies come to tell him some hunters are possibly missing in Mirkwood, and Hop says he'll go investigate that himself. Also, the state police found Bar- Barb's car at a bus station. The state police keep doing the job for them. Um, at the buyer's house, Lonnie is boarding over the hole that Joyce had hacked into the wall. He starts laying the groundwork to Joyce that the owners that the owners of the quarry are responsible for Will's death. Back at Mike's house, he demonstrates to Elle the idea of punching a hole to the upside down and asks if she knows where that is. She says no. Dustin realizes that all of their compasses are pointing north, but it's not actually true north. They figure this must be the direction of the gate. So while Lonnie showers, <clears throat> Joyce digs through his bag and finds a flyer for a personal injury lawyer. Lonnie plans to sue about Will's death. At Mike's, Nancy selects a baseball bat and awkwardly swings it around. Steve comes up from behind her and wants to know what she's doing. He apologizes for how he reacted about Barb being missing, and he offers to take her to see all the right moves with Tom Cruise, who he's told he looks like, of course. (laughs) Nancy begs off to stay with her family, but really she's going to go out with Jonathan looking for the Demogorgon. Now, Joyce is laying into Lonnie and tells him to get out. He blames her for the loss of Will, even though he wasn't there either. Jonathan is in a meadow trying to shoot cans and misses every single shot. Nancy gives them a hard time, and they reminisce about their parents and how they must have loved each other at some point in the past. Nancy says her parents were never in love, and she hits the can on her first shot. In the wreck of his home, Hopper calls his ex-wife and lets her know that their time as a family meant everything to him. We cut to the boys, continuing to follow their compasses through the woods, trying to find the gate. Lucas is still skeptical about Eleven. And L has flashbacks to a memory of the lab, a memory of being put into a sensory deprivation tank to enhance her powers. She tries to tell Mike to turn back, and he ignores her. Jonathan and Nancy are also in the woods, and she asks him why he took her picture that night. He says he thinks it's because she looked like someone who is trying to be something she isn't. She doesn't appreciate that observation, and they argue. She calls him pretentious and a creep, and he says that she'll end up just like her parents. At her house, Joyce hears a banging on her door, and she thinks it's Lonnie come back. It's actually Hop, and he's holding a handwritten sign that tells her to be quiet. He looks around her house, seeing all the lights, and realizes it will be hard for them to to, uh, search for bugs. The boys march out of the woods and into a junkyard. Dustin realizes that they've looped around back towards town. The sun is now behind them. Lucas is upset and accuses Elle of sabotaging their mission. She tells them it's not safe to go to the gate. Hop and Joyce have undone all the light bulbs in the house, and he finally feels like he can speak. He tells her that the government is on to him and that they went that he went to the morgue last night. He tells her that she was right. That was not Will's body. Lucas and Mike continue to argue. 
<clears throat> with Will defending with Mike defending L. Dustin tries to break it up, but it escalates Dustin uh, to Mike and Lucas fighting on the ground. Scared, Ellie uses her powers to fling Lucas across the junkyard. This causes her to flash back to her mission in the tank, spying on a Soviet man and channeling his voice to Brenner. While in the void, she hears the monster and runs, screaming for help. We cut back to the junkyard and Lucas wakes up. He's upset and stomps off. Elle has also disappeared. Nancy and Jonathan are in the woods and it's gotten dark. Nancy hears a noise and they trace it to a maimed deer. As Jonathan goes to put it out of its misery, the carcass is whisked away. They follow the blood trail through the leaves and it disappears. Nancy finds a hollow tree full of blood and calls for Jonathan. She goes to look into the tree and it's actually a portal to the upside down. She sees the Demogorgon feeding on the deer and screams. The beast begins to chase her. Jonathan hears her scream as he runs past the portal at the base of the tree, and that is the end of Chapter 5. Oh, boy. So, <clears throat> yeah. This one's the one that, I mean, the other ones had a cliffhanger-y feel to them. I mean, the last one with Hop cutting the fence, I mean, that's kind of a cliffhanger. Like, oh, well, I guess he's going in. But this yeah. one was the first one to me, at least, that had like a, a cliffhanger where they're in peril, you know, something terrible is happening, you know, we've got to watch right. this episode. Yeah, it's uh, and it's not even just the fact that he runs by the tree, it's the fact that a- after Nancy dives into that that tree, it starts to close up behind her. Mm-hmm. It's, you you yeah. would never even notice it. It's uh, just another example of the natural world that's our world being butted up against by the the upside down and how if you're not really looking for it you're just not going to see it right right that's a good point um well i'm glad that it had a kind of a, a strong cliffhanger ending um to kind of pull you into the next episode i felt like this one it like had a really strong beginning, really strong ending. The middle was kind of mm. no. I the wanna... funeral stuff I felt was a little a little laggy. I thought that the first time yeah. I watched it, and I thought that was I thought that this time as well. Uh, yeah. I felt like the I, I think this is the slowest episode of all the yeah. It's well, it's the, you know yeah. It's definitely it. The middle of this one is definitely slower, but it's it's setting up. It's got to set up all yeah. these pieces for the last. I mean, it's only right, got right. three it, episodes yeah. left. I know, and I was thinking about that because I was like, you know, I was trying to think, I was trying to articulate my own thoughts. Like, do I, because I don't want to make it come up like I think this is like the bad episode or anything like that. But it's it's kind of like, you know, we talked about last episode was kind of kind of a huge peak, you know, a huge pinnacle, and and in a lot of ways, kind of like that mid season finale. So this was kind of like that episode that's always like right after the mid-season finale. Yeah, the, the know, reset. After the, yeah, after all the big stuff just happened and you kind of have to deal with the fallout and kind of move forward. It's usually not as fast as the previous episode, and that's kind of what this was. Well, this, was, this wasn't plot peaks. This was character peaks. This is... Yes. Yes, it, which is what what it had to be. It's you've got to you've got to throw a little wrench into what the kids are doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make it worthwhile for what happens at the end. You have to yeah, throw it. A lot happens. It's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's um, if Jonathan and Nancy weren't committed before, the fact that they're stealing Lonnie's gun and deciding on their own, they're not involving any of the other adults. <laughs> they're going out on their own. 
to try to deal with the situation and hop becoming a a man on a mission um, oh man it, you know once he's decided that there's something wrong he's going to figure out what's going on with it and potentially to the detriment of his own well-being uh i mean when he's when he gets into the to the hawkins lab and he sees the biohazard sign he just sort of shrugs it off and is like well i'm I'm here you know it's because if i mean if they're lying about a dead kid what else are they lying about and what are they trying to hide and he's really the only one at this point that has any ability to do anything about it right well and yeah i totally agree with what you're saying that this does move the character stuff along quite a bit, but it is really a setup for the rest of the show. I mean, it's setting yeah, us up. We're we're on the we're, we're we've hit that peak. This is the setup for everything that's going to come after this, and it's basically all downhill from here in terms of the pace. Not that it's like the quality, I guess. Um, downhill as in picking up speed. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, I actually I. I I I totally agree. This was also to me the slowest episode, but it still had some really good moments. Um, the tension, like y'all just mentioned, as Hop descends lower and lower into the lab, and he sneaks in, and he, you know, disarms the guard and uh, and the chief of security. Uh, I really like that part. I mean, oh, he yeah. is not only is he determined, um, he's resourceful. He's you know quick on his feet. Um, you know, Hop is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and he's not, oh, yeah. he, and he, and it's the fact that he's a guy that is completely disheveled at this point in his career. You know, because of what has happened, which we'll, you know, we'll get more information on. But they do allude to it. Something's happened in his family that, after the, you know, the death of his daughter, caused that to to go south. But he's not. He, you know, he doesn't clean himself up. He's he's yeah, got a right. gut. But he's still—he's a, he's a guy with nothing to lose. You know, I don't even know if it's so much that he's a guy with nothing to lose. It's now he's a guy that has something to do. Yeah, he's got a mission. Well, that, yeah. Now he does. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know that that moment. I love you brought it up here, where, where he kind of shrugs, where he looks at the biohazard symbol. I mean, that was the moment I realized, like, if this was an actual '80s production, like he would have been Kurt Russell. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like he's like the Kurt Russell of this, and I, I think that's why I love like his character and and the the direction in that scene and the production of it, the way they juxtaposed his descent down into the depths with with the boys basically like spelling out the D and D lore of it, of yeah. the upside down, the veil of shadows as they referred to it. Like that was just a great way to tie those two scenes together with their. Um, voiceover as he goes down in there alone was just i loved it I yeah loved i mean opening. i i almost wrote down <laughs> i should have i guess uh dustin's description of the veil of shadows but uh, it's funny to me how you know their their D campaign is basically you know the metaphor as life of what they're actually going through in a lot of ways be it the demogorgon or or the upside down um yeah, that's an interesting way to, to to kind of bring us into it. Um, and it yeah. is uh, going back to the buyer's house. It's really poor timing for Jonathan, as he finally has you know come around to believing his mom's not crazy and crazy and having this corroborating evidence that 
you know, Nancy has Nancy and he have a picture of the thing that their that his mom is saying took Will, and of course that's when Lonnie shows up. Oh my god! Can can I just say as a as a as a child that grew up with father figures that came and went at their leisure, um, Lonnie is so spot on. Like his like, you know, showing up just basically to muck things up a bit and kind of throw some dad weight around, you know, and mm-hmm. just be a complete wrench in the works. I mean, I was just watching that and just like, oh my gosh, so good well, there, it's, done that. You but know? you don't even get that. Like it, when I first watched it, I'm like, all right, well, maybe he's really there to be supportive. And you think for a moment he's trying yeah, to be support yeah. supportive. Um, he, even when he, you, even when Joyce finds out about the fact that he's trying to make some money out of this, it still almost seems like he's tr- really trying to be there for them. Because I mean, obviously they'd be, you know, entitled to whatever happens with the settlement, uh, sure. you know, or judgment. But Joyce makes the point that it, it, you know, where were you when you actually needed to be here before all this? And it's. Right, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's and it's telling that after this, he's he's no longer part of the story. Oh, no, <laughs> I know. I know. Well, and he immediately goes to the nastiest thing you could say to yeah. Joyce, which is basically like, "It's your fault that the kid's gone." Right. You know. I mean, right. which is just like, oh, the yeah. lowest which, of blows. Yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the single mother she... who's. Yeah. Go ahead. The the single mother who's been working her ass off to put food on the table for her two kids <laughs> so that they have any sort of life. And where's he? He's off with the, you know, the younger girlfriend in his nice car and whatever. Uh, Living in the city, man. City life. (laughs) Jerk life. (laughs) I know. I know. Believe me, I know. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, Lonnie. Even his name is terrible. Lonnie. Every, every, you know what's funny? <laughs> I'll just break format a little bit here. Every time I hear the name Lonnie now, all I can think of is Donald Pleasance in Halloween. <laughs> Scaring the kid off of the, uh, <laughs> Lonnie, get your ass out of here. Oh, yeah. That's all I can think of any time I hear that name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's yeah, awesome. un- also unrelated, but related to Halloween. Uh, there's a theater around here that does Friday and Saturday night midnight movies. And oh, nice. Usually it's, you know, they at least one weekend a month it's Rocky Horror, and now they've also mixed in The Room pretty frequently. Oh, God. But... They uh, they are showing Halloween. I think the weekend before Halloween at midnight uh, on the big screen, and I actually think I'm going to go. I think you have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah that'd be awesome. Okay, but get back yeah, to Stranger so, Things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at the funeral, um, actually, like I mentioned it in the synopsis, but it was I thought a really nice uh, crane shot of. You know the the country church down to the the graveyard next door, and all the people there for the funeral, and uh, the burial, I should say. And I I made a note here. There was shades of Tom Sawyer reviewing his own wedding. I guess Will's not there, but them knowing that Will's actually alive and kind of laughing about it. Um, I thought that was a nice little touch. Well, it's it's the uh, kind of attitude only a kid okay. could have. Where oh, yeah, the, oh, yeah. yeah, the parents are so, other than Joyce, they're so out of touch with what's going on. And I mean, if you know, if they don't even care how they're being perceived about it. You know, they're not upset. I mean, <laughs> they do tell yeah. uh, Mr. Clark that um, they're in mourning, We're but 
but uh, well, it's hard to feel like you're in mourning when Dustin is commenting on the fact that there aren't real Nilla wafers at the at the reception. Right. Well, and that was uh, it's similar to how they did the previous episode with the um, the program at the school. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, they're having a hard time faking their grief when they know Will's really out there somewhere, and they're not not concerned, but. They know he's not dead, at least not yet. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and, it, and it's I'm sure, and it's hard for them when you're when you're the outcast kid, when you're kind of nerdy, like that attention focused on you, even when you know it's not really like for the wrong reason. Like like you know the the idea of oh my gosh, you know the pretty girl you like is sad that you're dead. You mm-hmm. know yeah, that that's a big deal. I remember sure. you know wanting that kind of attention at that that age from from the pretty girl that I sure as hell was not going to go talk to. Right. You know? <laughs> so you staged your own death. Just to yes, it yeah. worked out beautifully. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, uh, no, that's, it's great stuff. I love yeah. that, that part of the funeral. Well, it's, it's very, uh, I don't want to say realistic in a show about alternate dimensions and girls with teleconnect powers, but, you know, it's, it's know, grounding. Boys that age, you know, definitely would have yeah. a hard time reacting the way they really probably should but um i did think it was a little convenient that mr clark i mean obviously he's close to these kids they're close to him because they all have similar interests but you know they barely have to prod him at all talking about cosmos with carl sagan and he's going to give them this whole lecture with the perfect metaphor and everything else on how they need to get to the other side but uh, we needed that, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, and if well, I like that it was. Go, go ahead. Okay. Oh, oh man, that was awkward. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> awkward. Editing. Yeah. Uh, so, well, if I mean, if Will was as close to those kids and and he was spending time in the AV club and everything, then it's you know. As a teacher that this kid that will valued, I don't see why he wouldn't have been there. And again, yeah, he has to be Johnny Explainer for us, the audience. Uh, but at the, it's not even just the fact that they get him to sit down and talk about science with them at this funeral reception. Uh, it's that you know they mention the veil of shadows, and he immediately launches into that he knows what it is. So he's just as much of a nerd as these kids are. Yeah. Uh, so like that. it totally explains the bond that they would have with him if you know he, Mr. Clark was probably one of the outcasts in the you know the fifties when he was growing up. So. Sure. Yeah, and I I had, I had a few teachers that were i was that friendly with about that age too so i kind of appreciate the 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 whole concept of the character of mr clark but i know i was thinking about that same that same point uh jonathan even before i read your show notes and and i was thinking about it and that's kind of one of the things i like i don't want to talk too much ahead but i feel like i like that he basically comes up with kind of a metaphor and you know because we're used to kind of the you know Johnny exposition and shows that we think that okay, this is how it works. We don't really get confirmation that that Mr. Clark is a hundred percent right. You know, I, I like that there's still some mystery about it. That it's um, it reminded me a lot of horror movies. You know, where you kind of like make some. You know, the characters will make some assumptions about what the rules are of the monster or the thing they're trying to fight, and you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not right. You know. Well, you're you're Um, exactly right in this instance is that he gives them this idea and it happens to be 
right in a way, but I don't think it, it's obviously not 100% right, you know, with what's going on yeah. with Elle and her role in the creation of the Rift and everything else. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of the things I like about the show overall. Like, um, you know, one of the big parts of the story of this episode was the fact that the boys kind of had a break over trusting Elle and whether or not she was either lying or telling the truth. And and I was thinking about that, and, you know, when they ask Elle straight up, do you know, where, you know, like, how to get to the, you know, to the upside down and all that, and she says, no, I don't know if she's actually lying. Lying. Yeah, because you know when you think about it, back to the first episode, we basically see the monster running around uh, at Hawkins' lab. Yeah, and and we and then we run into L later. She's obviously gotten out in the commotion, but does she you know, know this? Yeah, she might not know that there's a, a, that there's a, a opening. There. <laughs> you know, we know that she connected. To, you know, we've seen how she has connected to the creature in her mind, but not. You know, in in re- in reality, in the waking world, as it were. So, right. Um, that's one of the things that I like about the show overall is that there's lots of um, fun things to think about in the nooks and crannies that aren't just spelled out overtly. You know, in the story, black and white. There's some some mystery there, and I really like that a lot. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, I do too. Um, yeah, that <laughs> that that segues nicely um, into this next part. But I mean. Pop's phone call to his ex-wife is the kind of thing you would say to someone if you think you may never speak to them again. And, you know, we do get more details about what happened with them, but not so much that it doesn't give us some room to kind of, you know, put together ourselves, I guess, with how their relationship met its demise and it still affects him. And I even think from her tone of voice, and she even calls back, I think it obviously, you know, she still cares for him too, or it still is upsetting to her too to see him hurting the way he is. But yeah, it, yeah. But he immediately goes into defense mode. She asks if he's been drinking, and he says no because he hasn't been. I mean, right, he got right. knocked out, right. and then immediately after that, he says, "Yeah, I've been drinking." You know, that kind of ends the call. But we do also see on his table that there are a ton of pills there. She does ask if he's on his if he's been taking his meds. So whether that's for anxiety or emotional issues, that never really gets explained, but it's just another layer of his character. He's a guy that has been dealing with his own personal trauma, um, but it seems, you know, it's with what he's dealing with now, he's not drinking, he's not taking any medication, he seems focused, like he doesn't need anything else at this point. He just, uh, he does want to have that emotional connection with... uh, the mother of his child but uh you know even if that's not coming to fruition there's other stuff going on and when his sergeants roll up and tell him something's going on he immediately backs them off of it because uh, he's already found the bug and says that he'll take care of it i mean he's this is his yeah. quest at this point well and there's two things there one um the, they come to tell him the hunters are missing and i i I haven't rewatched all the way through yet, but I don't recall from my first watch through that that comes up again. Does it? Does it I not? can't remember it coming up again. It's yeah. just uh, yeah. He's like, oh, I'll take care of it. <laughs> sort of does. It basically gets confirmed later by another character that that more people than Will and Barb have been going missing. Oh yeah. right, okay. right, right. Yep. Yeah. And then. Um, I think one of the deputies even says when they walk up and they see inside his house and see how like trashed it is, 
I think one of them says, like, he's off his meds, basically. Oh, okay. Maybe that's where it was, yeah. Well, she might have said something about it, too. I don't recall exactly her dialogue, but I know oh. for sure one of the deputies says something like, I think he's off his meds, or... Yeah, and the one says he's been spending too much time with Joyce. Yeah. Byers. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, and I don't think there's any implicit anything there, like, regarding any sort of inappropriate relationship, but, I mean, everybody in the town thinks that Joyce is bananas crazy. at this point. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, Hop just looks completely like he's been run through the ringer when they show up, and it's clearly past the point in the day where he should have already reported for duty, otherwise yeah, they like, wouldn't have gone there. He, yeah. he wakes up, and it's probably just, you know, a side effect of whatever they shot him up with, but, I mean, he's, like, sweated through his clothes... You yeah. know he's in he's in a bad way. Uh, the the look of rage on his face when he finds the bug. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely um, yeah, he's on a mission. He's been through the ringer, and I like the fact that the you know the deputy kind of points out you know oh he's been spending too much time with Joyce because you know by the end of this episode when they kind of come together and he tells her that great moment when he tells her you were right this whole time. Yeah, yeah, you and know, she look. I'm yeah, right she doesn't even have to say anything. It all plays on Winona Ryder's face, like oh, just the beautiful. You can see the weight lifting off her shoulders. You know, when somebody that's respected as a figure of authority is saying you were right. Yeah, the uh, validation. Yeah, yep. yeah, it ties them together. You know, uh, hand in hand for the rest of the you know the story for sure. So. Yeah, that's the that's the other thing. This episode, like we said, it's it's putting pieces in place. It's getting now the adults are mm-hmm. getting together more so than they were at the end of the the last episode. It's it's still yeah. doing that that fine act of separately intertwining these three characters, the three plot threads between the the teenagers, the adults, and the kids, uh, which you know still has more in front of it that actually is incredibly satisfying the way that they do manage to work it together. What else do we have for notes? <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, the, the next kind of part in the story, at least was Lonnie taking off. And you mentioned it before, and I totally agree on my first watch through. I wasn't clear if he was, you know, genuine and like, well, now he is going to come back and now he is going to try and help, um, or not. But I mean, it didn't take much to scare him off, you know, to show his true colors, I guess, in terms of not really caring too much about helping Jonathan or helping Joyce. Yeah. Um, and it's even really hinted at in Jonathan's dialogue with him at the very beginning. Um, he he kind of says something about, like, I'm going to make things right here or we're going we're gonna to take care of this family or something like that. And yeah. we know now it's because he thinks he's going to be able to you know, file a wrongful death lawsuit against the quarry and make some money out of this. But, uh, yeah, that's good riddance, bad rubbish, as they say. So, um, an alternative title I wrote here for this episode could have been the breaking of the fellowship. <laughs> and, uh, and it would awesome. have fit in with all the Lord of the Ring references. Um, but, you know, seeing the tension that Lucas has had tension with L and with Mike over L, um, you know, pretty much since the very beginning, he's been skeptical. Oh, yeah. He's been free. I think it's partly fear. I think he's freaked out by her a little bit. Oh, and who wouldn't um, be? But he's also the one that but feels like that boil over was painful. 
Yeah, and uh, oh yeah, that that confrontation they have is heartbreaking. It's just, I mean, the way Lucas is though, Lucas is he's like what Hop is to the to the adults. He's the, he's the one who's kind of laser focused on this is I know this is what we have to do. Let's go do it. And when he feels like that's not being done the way he wants it to, or in the manner that they think that he thinks it should be done, he has. And, and it, rightfully so, he's got some suspicions of Eleven. He's not unfounded in the fact that she is lying to them. She's doing it to protect them. But as I mean, if you're a ten-year-old, eleven-year-old kid, I mean, that's still, you know, it doesn't really matter why. All you can feel is that that betrayal. And he says it. Yeah. He's saying that she's a traitor. Yeah, she sabotaged them. Yeah, I mean. No, that, that's a good point. I mean, he, I think he thinks that they're losing sight of finding Will because Mike is somewhat infatuated with L. You know, you're losing focus. We need to find Will, not deal with this crazy person. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I think it's interesting, too, in the flashbacks in that scene, we realized that it was L, uh, I guess, in her mindscape or whatever you want to call it. There's no details or anything. Uh, it's just this black space void. Um, she's the one that initially encounters the Demogorgon, but we hear it in this episode. We don't actually see it. And nobody that's listening in on the PA and, and what she's relaying through the, the Upside Down has any clue of what it is. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So we're that's, that's the very beginning, I guess, we see of uh, her role in how the monster got there and all that. So we'll see more of that in the following episodes. Mm -hmm. And I do like seeing Jonathan and Nancy's friendship blossom in this episode. Um, their conversation I thought was, I mean, pretty deep for high schoolers, I guess, but Jonathan's already a little more beyond his age, but just from what he's had to deal with. Sure. But, but Nancy's not stupid either. I mean, she, she has she has her family completely pegged. She has her mom and dad completely pegged as the prototypical early 80s pre yuppie uh pick an ease of situation and get married for convenience yeah. which is what that is. But Jonathan has her pegged too and saying she's this oh, yeah. uh, you're the you're a, the same kind of suburban girl that's doing what every other suburban girl who hates their family is doing. And it's not making you any special at all. It's you're doing the same thing as everybody else. And she is, I mean, that shuts her down pretty quick. Oh, yeah. She did not appreciate that. No. Well, truth uh, hurts. No, no doubt. No doubt. But you know, that, that's something that I think I like about their friendship too, is they, they, they're not afraid to give each other crap, but then they still like, trust and come back to each other yeah we're together still well yeah Yeah, i mean who else is going to listen to them they're they're kind of bonded they don't have a choice they can't really go to hopper or or joyce yet and she's certainly not going to tell her little brother you know because she she's not aware of what's going on she's not aware that there's a a psychokinetic psychotelekinetic child living in the basement with her little brother and right that they're doing anything but yeah. yeah, no, but I just I like their performance and the way there's just yeah you, know, you just tell there's something there and it's um yeah it's hilarious their back and forth in this episode is is just kind of great and um yeah it's just even gonna get better 
So. Yeah, and I noted here, and I think it's one thing that people critique the show for, is that, I mean, they're still ostensibly looking for Barb, I guess, but they're more in lines of, like, killing the monster. They kind of, they're not really looking for Barb, per se. Yeah, well, they, uh... Oh, yeah, she's she's gone. I mean, they think, as far as the police have told her, they, you know, they think she's run away. Ran off, yeah. Yeah. Because the state troopers found the car, so that's kind of, in terms of anybody that's not Hop or, or the two of them, Bob's story's said and done. She ran away. <laughs> I mean, right. right. <sighs> now, and, and like I said before, I really I really did think it was a, a great cliffhanger to end on with her being in the upside down, screaming for help, running from the Demogorgon. Yeah, because we know what happened the last time uh, somebody got pulled in there, and that was the end of Barb. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. That's one of the things I've, I've really enjoyed about uh, the episodes, the direction when it comes to, um, like you said, like the, the cliffhangers, and um, even the way they, every episode, the way it, it, it goes from the, the opening uh, segment and, and gets to the title card. I just think it's just... Uh, spot on perfect every time yeah and, and even this one it's just it's just great like i remember like this was the episode that i think it was about three thirty in the morning <laughs> and we had thought okay this we're, we're gonna watch five and go to bed and we were like nope we're watching six <laughs> and, and so <laughs> we had to watch just one more i think we got halfway through six before we just finally just couldn't take it anymore we basically just fell asleep watching it but yeah we could not wait after this one we had to watch yeah. the very next episode yeah so. yeah i had the same uh, same reaction with the the end of episode four and then i fell asleep watching this one because I, <laughs> I, I my body was so tired yeah yeah i yeah it, it's a i guess in terms of the direction uh, i thought this actually was a pretty strongly directed episode because there's still so many you know separate pieces they're still weaving them together you know, the editing together of the different storylines, you know, they don't linger too long in any one thread of the story. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot to move between, but I think they do a good job of balancing it as they go along. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're going to do a show like this and keep things separate, you do have to make sure that, at least as the viewer's concerned, that you do tie those things together, even if the characters aren't realizing that they're tying together. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, awesome. it's definitely well, it's definitely one of the the strengths of the show. I think, yeah, because we that being only eight episodes. I know we said it before. Like it's 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 nice that we can we can do that jumping back and forth between the the, the different plot threads in the same episode. We don't have to have just a an all Jonathan and Nancy episode or an, an yeah. all Hop episode. You know? Yeah, I mean, because there's right. the, there's definitely a version that you could have made as a two hour movie of this. Would it have had the richness this does? No. Is could you have done this as a two night miniseries? Yeah. You absolutely okay. could have, but again, you're going to lose some of that connective tissue and that in the the richness and the the enjoyment that you get out of getting to see all of the main characters. Mm-hmm. Bravo, Netflix! I love you. Right, man. <laughs> yes. Well, that um, for you know we all considered one of the slower episodes. I think that there was actually a lot in there, and that just goes the you know, show the richness of the show. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, I think that's all I have in terms of notes for this one. So do you all have any, any final things you want to drop on this one, or you think we're good to go? Uh, I think just the the most obvious reference, other than the Evil Dead poster in this one, is Dustin straight-up quoting Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, Riddles in the Dark, after they're talking about what was going on with Will and the Upside Down. So yeah. I that's, didn't. I didn't put that in the notes, but definitely there at the very beginning. When that's at the very beginning when they're trying to figure out what he meant by what you know, what they could hear him saying. And I guess I don't know if I mentioned it on the last one. Fans of the show are calling the Demogorgon Tulip Head because of the way his head opens up. Okay, that nice. that's interesting. I was going to say, um, what is the poster? The black and white poster behind the couch. In the basement at Mike's house? The black and white poster behind... I think yeah. it's a tiger, isn't it? I could be wrong. Nah, it, it, it almost looks like... That one. Yeah, maybe... I think it's in the next episode as well. Yeah, definitely... Um, I'll have to keep my eyes peeled. Yeah, keep an eye Because it looks to me like it could be... Um, shoot, like from an old Harryhausen movie or something. You know, oh, okay. like stop motion... You know, fantasy movies, but it also kind of looks like to me the Demogorgon, um, whatever it's supposed to be. And I don't feel like you ever get a super clear shot of it, but just keep your eyes on that for next episode and let me know if you can figure out what it is. All right. All right. Well, thanks guys for joining us. And uh, like we said, at the top of the episode, you can you can definitely reach us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group with a handful of people on it, and we hope to continue to add people to that group. You can email us at castprotection at gmail.com and you can reach us on Twitter at castprotection and please do leave an iTunes review as uh, if you've ever listened to any podcast ever, you know that a lot of people get their podcasts through iTunes and the more positive reviews you have, uh, the more it, it helps get the show uh, noticed by iTunes and, and noticed by other people who might be interested in it. So leave us uh, an iTunes review and that'd be great. What, one more reference. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, telling that there were four characters walking down some train tracks in this uh, oddly apropos since this is the 30th anniversary of Stephen King's uh, novella The Body uh, which became Stand By Me <laughs> so uh, again the Stand By Me references uh, keep piling up but that's if you see that Rob Reiner movie there's shots in this that are pretty much the same thing yeah I think it's pretty clear that was an influence a uh, big influence on the Duffer Brothers as they as they made this show no doubt well, that's all I have for this week, so thanks, guys, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk uh, Chapter 6. Thanks. See ya. Bye. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email 2TrueFreaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com. 
Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Freaks.